and face Mount Seir and prophesy against its people. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Mount Seir, and I will raise my fist against you to destroy you completely. I will demolish your cities and make you desolate. Then you will know uh, that I am uh, the Lord. And so, Father, tonight as we approach these sections in Scripture that are still just as relevant today as when they were written some 2,500 years ago, Lord, help us to understand them in maybe a a new appreciation or maybe even for the first time. Lord, help us to apply these uh, verses, these chapters into our own life, to see the, the pride that these nations had and your desire to reach even those that are not uh, of Jewish descent, the Gentiles. And yet you still reach out with patience and warning to the rest of the world, just like you did with us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us tonight clearly, and that we would uh, see a, a glimpse of who you are in your scriptures. And so, Lord, I, I thank you so much for... Uh, Isaac and, and Dylan and, and um, uh, Dominic and just leading us in worship, uh, just bringing us to your throne room. I ask that that would continue on as we, we read your word, to understand it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. Amen. Uh, Mount, Mount Seir is the capital of uh, the nation of Edom, and we've seen uh, the Edomites earlier in uh, the book of Ezekiel, and you guys remember those were the descendants of Esau, who was the twin brother of uh, Jacob or Israel. This was the guy that had red hair and could hunt and bring home the nice game for his dad, which he loved uh, dearly. And now we get to see the ending of the Edomites. Who is raising his fist at the Edomites? God is. And this has been a long time coming. This has been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, This has been a long period. And just like with the Israelites, God is patient with uh, sinners. And he is long-suffering with people that are in need of uh, redemption. This area here, Mount Seir, is modern-day Jordan and Petra. If you go to the area, even uh, today, all the rocks there are red, just like Esau was, the twin brother of Israel. And, And so you see these various events that are taking place. It continues on there in verse 5. Your eternal hatred for the people of Israel led you to butcher them when they were helpless when I had already punished them for all their sins. Can you imagine the twin brother of Israel, the descendants from the line of Esau, persecuting their own brethren? The the infighting that happens, not, not just in Abraham's family, Ishmael and Isaac, but also later on with Isaac's two sons, who were twins, Esau and Jacob. And, and then, of course, all the descendants of those, the Arab nations, the ones that surround Israel even today that we read earlier last week. All these nations, the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, they're all related to the Israelites. These were their relatives, and they hate, continue to hate, even to this day, the Israelites. 
Verse 6, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, since you show no distaste for blood, I will give you a bloodbath of your own. Your turn has come. Every single one of these colors, the rocks, the hair, uh, the body hair, all of these colors, the blood bath, all of these are the color red. All, all these things, if you remember from the early part of Genesis, what does Esau's name mean? Red, right? He, he was known for his red hair, his red hair that covered his body, all the rocks that were red that he lived in, and now the bloodbath that's going to be taking place. Here on Mount Seir, verse 7, I will make Mount Seir utterly desolate, killing off all who try to escape and any who return. I will fill your mountains with the dead, your hills, your valleys, your ravines will be filled with people slaughtered by the sword, and I will make you desolate forever. Your cities will never be rebuilt. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The second time we see that in the same chapter. This phrase that's used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible. What is the purpose for the discipline that God is giving to the enemies of Israel? It's to show them that he is God. That he is uh, Yahweh, as uh, Dominic Schertz said. Do you, do you understand how long this desolation will last? What does it say there in verse 9? How long will the desolation last? In fact, if you go to Petra today, if you go to the area where there is red rocks uh, today, there's just nomads there and tourists. That's it. There's no more Edomites. There's no more people that permanently live in this area. Oh, you can see the architecture. You can see the, the amazing irrigation channels. You can see the, the architecture literally put into uh, the rocks, but you will see no permanent people there. Why? According to the scriptures. Does, does God fulfill uh, prophecy? Yes, he does. Verse 10, for you said, the lands of Israel and Judah will be ours. We will take possession of them. What do we care that the Lord is there? Therefore, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I will repay back your angry deeds with my own. Oh, wow. Whose strength is stronger? Who is more omnipotent? Who, who is more powerful? It is uh, God himself. And, and we see this phrase, and, and of course, you guys know this when we were going through the book of, of Psalms, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the name of God, uh, Yahweh. Uh, God is swearing by his own uh, name against the enemies of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, have heard every contemptuous word you spoke against the mountains of Israel, for you said they are desolate, they have been given to us as food to eat. In saying that, you boasted proudly against me, and I have heard it all. What happens when you tell God what to do? What happens when you say that I am greater than God himself? And it's easy to see it in other people, right? It's really easy to see it in other people. 
We see it in throughout the, the scriptures. We were able to pick it out in certain people in the Bible. We pick it out in people that we know. But is it um, easy to overlook it in our own heart? You see, it's easy for us to say the same thing that the Edomites say. When we go against the will of, of God, we'll see this in the next verse here. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, the whole world will rejoice when I make you desolate. Wow. And just like we do when someone falls on the news or, or someone that, you know, it, it is uh, powerful and, and they got what they deserved, right? And you hear the cheers or you may even cheer in your own heart. Why does God do this? He says it in the next verse. You rejoice at the desolation of Israel's territory. Now I will rejoice at yours. You will be wiped out, you people of Mount Seir and all who live in Edom. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Will God protect his own? Yes, he does. God always protects those that are his. The Israelites, even though they weren't in the land, God saved the land for them to come back to 70 years later when they came back out of Babylon. God, God specifically saved the land just for them. And by the way, when they came back in May 14th, 1948, did God save the land for them then too? Yes. It's God. And we'll see an even greater uh, returning uh, later on in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 36, it continues on here. Verse 1, Son of man, prophesy to Israel's mountains. Give them this message. O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Going from Edom's mountain, Mount Seir, and now going to Israel's mountains. We, we see many mountains in Israel. Jerusalem itself is set upon a hill or a mountain. A mount of what? Olives. We see various mountains throughout the scriptures that are in uh, the nation of Israel, the territory of Israel. Ezekiel is called to prophesy to these mountains. He says in verse 2, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Your enemies have taunted you saying, aha, now the ancient heights belong to us. Therefore, son of man, give the mountains of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. Your enemies have attacked you from all directions, making you the property of many nations and the object of much mocking and slander. You see now that the nation of Israel had been taken captive 900 miles away to Babylon. Ezekiel with them. The land is now empty. Prime property for anyone to just walk in. And what is God saying to those that want to take over the land? I'm going to protect the mountains of Israel. I'm going to stand up and be powerful for the mountains of Israel. And so when Ezra and Nehemiah come back to the land 70 years later, who's there to protect them in the land? God is, yeah. 
They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. Verse 4. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. He speaks to the hills and the mountains, the ravines and the valleys, to ruined wastes and long deserted cities that have been destroyed and mocked by the surrounding nations. This is what the sovereign Lord says. My jealous anger burns against these nations, especially Edom, because they have shown utter contempt for me by gleefully taking my land for themselves as plunder. Why can God be sinless and be jealous? Do you understand the difference between uh, jealousy and, you know, the, the last commandment in the Bible that, that definitely speaks against envy? That thou shalt not envy or covet uh, thy neighbors, you know, whatever. The list can go on and on and on. Their boat, their house, their wife, their servants, their cows, their goats, whatever it is, right? But do you understand what envy means and why it's a sin? And sometimes we get it confused with jealousy. What is envy? Yeah, wanting what somebody else has. Jealousy is different. And in the eyes of God, this is righteous because God owns the land. And other nations are trying to take it from him, and he is jealous. It's like a husband and a wife. As Israel is called many times in the Bible, the, the wife of God or the one that is betrothed to uh, God. God is jealous when they would go after other gods. Rightfully so, it is a righteous jealousy because God not only has given himself for the nation of Israel, but they have turned their back on the covenant that God has made with them. And the same thing with the land as well. Is the land God's? And God chooses who to give that land uh, to, right? In fact, in verse 6, there it says, Therefore prophesy to the hills and the mountains, the ravines and the valleys of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am furious that you have suffered shame before the surrounding nations. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I have taken a solemn oath that those nations will soon have their own shame to endure. But by the way, did the land sin? Did the mountains sin? Did the ravines sin or the valleys sin or any, any of the, you know, the geological features in Israel sin? No. But they still had to endure the process of what was going on in Israel. Is nature affected by sin? Oh, yeah. It started with the fall, by the way. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Once sin entered the world, what happened to nature itself? Yeah, you have to pull weeds now, right? There's bugs, right? There, there's all the things that, you know, uh, annoy us in nature. But, but also the corruption that comes along with it as well. 
And so God is not only standing up for the Israelites, he's standing up for the land that he has chosen and set aside for the Israelites, the promised land, right? That has gone into um, corruption. You see, when, when God disciplines his people, he protects them at the same time. Where is the nation of Israel at this time? They're in Babylon, right? And is God still preserving them and protecting them to come back to the land? Yes. Will he bring them back? You know, you've read the rest of the Old Testament. You know the story. God's going to bring them back. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families of the earth will be blessed uh, through you. We know that verse probably by heart. Did the Edomites bless Israel? Did the Ammonites bless Israel? Did the Moabites bless Israel? Did the Philistines bless Israel? No, none of those nations blessed. In fact, they wanted the downfall of Israel. They were glad when they were destroyed by or taken away captive by Babylon. And so will God's word come true? Yes. Every single time. Verse 8. But the mountains of Israel will produce heavy crops of fruit for my people. For they will be coming home again soon. By, this, by the way, this is just a glimpse of what we're going to see in chapter 40. When we see the, the millennial uh, kingdom. Uh, but verse 9 it says. See I care about you. I will pay attention to you. Your ground will be plowed. And your crops planted. I will greatly increase the population of Israel. And the ruined cities. Will be rebuilt and filled with. Uh, people. Do you understand. The minuscule. The, the, the extremely small amount of people. The remnant. Of Israel that are left. Do you guys remember when Israel left Egypt way back in Exodus? How many people came out of Egypt? Millions, right? Three million, four million, five million people are the estimates, right? This huge, massive amount of people came out of Egypt and, and crossed through the wilderness, right? Came into the promised land. You know what happens when they're in Babylon? Because of the siege, because of all the things that we read about when we were in the book of Jeremiah, all the famine and all the, the horrific things that happened to the nation of Israel, when they come back, they're going to be in the hundreds. This once great and mighty nation is now reduced to an extremely small amount of people, the remnant. That's why it's called the remnant. Now, of course, God's going to multiply them. We see a little bit of that here. How does it say in verse 10? What will God do when they come back? What will God do when they come back? Multi greatly multiply uh, them. And, and so when they come to the, you know, uh, the division of, of the B.C. and A.D., when Jesus is born, uh, they're going to be in the thousands again. And then unfortunately what will happen in AD 70, they're going to be destroyed. And then what happens during the millennial kingdom? We're going to see them again in the millions. They're going to be the center of the world. They'll be the apple of God's 
I. It says there in verse 11, I will increase not only the people, but also your... What do you need to feed the people? Yeah. You go to Israel today, it's, it's amazing in terms of the agriculture, in, in terms of uh, the produce that is, is uh, farmed and, and cultivated in Israel today. Date trees that just literally line the highways, pomegranates and all these beautiful, you know, amazing uh, fruits and spices. And then, of course, uh, the animals as well. Verse 12, I will cause my people to walk on you once again, and you will be their territory. You will never again rob them of their children. This whole chapter is speaking to not the nation of Israel, but the land of Israel, the promised land. Does God still have his hand on the land? Yes. Isn't that amazing? Did, did he promise not only the people of Israel that they would be a nation, but they would have a territory as well? The, the defined area that we're going to see later on in chapter 40, 41, 42 of the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see defined lines where we're going to see the actual territory of Israel that has never been fully inhabited by the Israelites, by the way, ever, is going to be given to the nation of Israel. God is speaking to the land right now. He's speaking to the mountains. He's speaking to the territory of Israel, promising them. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, in verse 8, we read this. Then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord. And I will be the glory inside the city. And after a period of glory, the Lord of heaven's army sent me against the nations who plundered you. For he said, anyone who harms you, my most precious possession. Wow. Does God own the land? Yes, he made it. He specifically gave it to the Israelites. It is, it is theirs by right. And God is speaking to the land. Verse 13, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The other nations taunt you saying, Israel is a land that devours its own people and robs them of their children. But you will never again devour your people or, or rob them of their children, says the sovereign Lord. I will not let you hear those nations insult you. You will no longer be mocked by them. It will not be a land that causes its nation to fall, says the sovereign Lord. I don't know how you feel when someone mocks the place where you were born. Maybe it was, you know, another country or maybe it was a city or, or maybe it was a state or whatever it is. And someone says something bad about that place. You know, someone says something bad about Fontana, California, where I was born. Altaloma or Tachapi or something like that. Or Bakersfield, right? People say bad things about Bakersfield all the time, right? But, but what happens, I mean, especially if it's a, a nation, 
You're born in a certain part of the world and someone speaks bad about that place. What does it do to your blood? And imagine God when people speak ill of the land of Israel. Does God stand up and defend his own? Thank God that he does, verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. We read this, I think, about a year and a half ago. It says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right, victorious right hand. Who's going to win? Who already has won? Yes. God has. By the way, I know I know there's, you know, again, there, there are certain chapters that we, we love and we, we want to, you know, just skip ahead to. But all these chapters are here on purpose. This is the preparation for the next chapter. This is the buildup. This is the preparation now for what we're going to see when Armageddon takes place, when Gog and Magog takes place. This is why God is defending Israel. This is telling us the very heart of God. Why he's going to do what he's going to do later on in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 16 there of, of chapter 36. It says, then this further message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled by the evil way they lived. To me, their conduct was as unclean as a woman's menstrual cloth. They polluted the land with murder and the worship of idols. So I poured out my fury on uh, them. And I'll let you imagine the comparison here. It says there in verse 19, I scattered them to many lands to punish them for the evil way that they had lived. This description is very, very graphic. The, the comparison that is given here. This is something that would be thrown away. This is something that would be, you know, um, uh, very, very bloody. Can you imagine that? What God does in his fury. For those that are against his land, his people. In fact, in verse 20, it says, but when they were scattered among the nations, they brought shame to my holy name. Wow. Remember when, when God wanted to destroy Israel, when, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving those Ten Commandments, and, and, and God wanted to destroy the people because they were making golden calves. They were, they were making idols. And, and this was just literally months after God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And what did God want to do? He wanted to destroy them all, right? What did Moses say to God? What will the nation say? And not about the people of Israel, but about your name. About God's name. The holiness of his name. The name that, you know, we've been seeing, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the, the, the yod Heh vav Heh that we see on Dominic's shirt, the, the Yahweh, the name of God, the tetragrammaton, the, the, the holy, righteous name of who God is. 
defined by his I am that I am. The one who stands up in omnipotent power for his. Those that are his in jealous, righteous anger. He stands up for his holy name. For the nation said, these are the people of the Lord. But he couldn't keep them safe in his own land. Can you imagine saying that to God? Then I was concerned for my holy name in which my people brought shame among uh, the nations. Do you know that you bear the name of Jesus Christ? You bear the name of God. Just by the very title of Christian, right? We understand what happens when we sin. We understand what happens when, you know, people see us sin. Who gets mocked? Who gets shamed? Who gets blasphemed? God himself. Verse 22, therefore give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. I'm bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name in which you brought shame among the nations. Do you think God is concerned with this subject? Why do you think the third commandment says, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, right? And why even in the Hebrew scriptures, if you go to a, a, a Hebrew synagogue even today, where they will not even pronounce the name of God. They, they replace it with Adonai or his title. The title of God. The Bible is very clear that the name of God is holy. And it should always be used in holiness. Not that we should never say it, but it should always be used in reverence and respect. And whenever we approach, especially when we pray, when we talk to God or, or when we talk to God about others, it should always be in reverence of who he is. He is a God. He is Yahweh. He is the I am that is I am. He always was, always is, always will be. In fact, in Psalms 106 verse 8, it says this. Even so, he saved them to defend the honor of his name and demonstrate his mighty power. Do you know why God saved you? Now, thank God he, he saved you because he loves you, 100%. But do you know why God saved you? For his holy name, for his glory. So, so that when you're saved, you bring glory to God. Do you understand that? Because an impossible work was just done. And you couldn't do it yourself. No one else could do it for you. And who gets the glory for that? God does. He saves for his holy in name. He's going to do the same thing for Israel. In verse 24, it says this, For I will gather you up from all the nations, bring you home again to your land. That is a promise. 
that, that, it, that is God promising the nation of Israel. We're going to see that again at the end of this uh, magnificent book. By, by the way, I don't know if you've ever, you know, maybe read through the book of Ezekiel and, and you know, did it through a, a, a year plan or, or just to maybe study it on your own. But, but the, the way that Ezekiel approaches God, especially as a, a priest, being a, a priest in uh, the nation of Babylon, no longer having a, a temple of his own, the respect for who God is is evident. It is prevalent throughout the whole book. Does Ezekiel revere God? Yes, he does. In fact, this is one of the, the longest descriptions that we see uh, of the name of, of God. You see, even our salvation, e even the saving of the nation of Israel brings glory to God's name. And thank God it's the same and true with us today. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship uh, idols. The, the great uh, description of salvation, God saves us for his glory. And how does he wash us clean? How does he wash us clean? We're, we're going to celebrate that tonight, by the way. By the, by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? He's going to wash clean. Verse 26 there, I will give you a new heart. Where have you heard that before? Thank God. Right? I mean, this is exactly like we see in the, the New Testament. Does God give you a new heart when you accept him into your heart? Does he change you and make you a new creation? I love the description in the rest of the verse. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Can you, can you envision that? I, I, I know that every single person that's been saved, even in this room, uh, there was a change that happened in your life when, when Jesus came into it. You, you became a new creation. But, but imagine just through the eyes of Ezekiel having that old, stony, shriveled up heart taken out. And what does he give us? A new, tender heart. A, 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 a heart that's responsive to the will of God. Wow. An amazing description in verse 27, it says, and I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, in you that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Why do we have the seal of the Holy Spirit even now? Why did God put the Holy Spirit in your heart? So that you would hear him. That, that voice that prompts you. That, that heart that should be responsive and tender toward the Holy Spirit. That when he speaks, we want to obey, as it says there in verse 27. In fact, you guys know this one already, Psalms 51 verse 10. Create in me a 
renew a loyal spirit within me or a right spirit within me? Why does God put his Holy Spirit within us? Why does he take that old, hard, shriveled pebble of a heart that is no longer responsive or, or doesn't have any desire for the things of God and gives us a new heart? When you read 1 Corinthians and you read about a new creation, imagine Ezekiel describing this. It's a heart transplant, right? You are now new in Jesus Christ. And again, we get to celebrate that tonight. Verse 28, and you will live in Israel. The land I gave your ancestors long ago, you will be my people and I will be your God. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I will give you good crops of grain. I will send no more famines on the land. I will give you great harvest from your fruit trees and fields. And never again will the surrounding nations be able to scoff at your land for its famines. Then you will remember your past sins and despise yourselves for all the detestable things that you did. But remember, says the sovereign Lord, I am not doing this because you deserve it. Because what would happen to all of us if we got what we deserved? You already know that. Pastor says it all the time. What would we get if we got what we deserved? Yeah, hell. But what is God doing it for? Oh, my people of Israel, you should be utterly ashamed of all you have uh, done. Thank God for his grace, for his forgiveness. But there's an understanding that we need to be repentant before God because of what we've done to offend him, going against his will. Verse 33, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities and the ruins will be rebuilt. The fields that used to lie empty and desolate in plain view of everyone will again uh, be formed. W what is happening now to the land because of the repentance, because of the change of heart of the people? The land was once desolate. The land was once corrupt because of the people. It reflected what the people were doing, right? The, the corruption that was in the heart of the people seeped into the land, and now once the people repent, when they come back, no longer wanting to do what they want to do, but doing what God wants them to do, what is now the response of the land as well? Wow. Yeah. By the way, that goes to the pre-fall all the way before uh, Adam and Eve sinned. What was Adam's job? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't after he sinned that he was given a job, by the way. It was before he sinned. And what was that job? It was to care for the garden. Yeah, yeah, he was supposed to name them all, but he was supposed to care for the garden. That's what he was supposed to do. It reflected the heart of uh, the people. I'm sure you can get lots of illustrations. Those of you that have gardens, if you tend it, what's going to happen to it? And what's going to happen if you don't tend it? You know. Yeah. It's going to die, right? The same thing. You see that here. 
I love this in verse uh, uh, 31. Then you will remember your past sins, despise yourselves for all the detestable things you did. But remember, says the sovereign Lord, I'm not doing this because you deserve it. Oh, my people Israel, you should be utterly ashamed of all you have done. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I cleanse you from your sins, I will repopulate your cities. The ruins will be rebuilt. The fields that used to lie empty and desolate in plain view of everyone will again be farmed. And when I bring you back, people will say this. The former wasteland is now like what? Oh, amazing. What is it going to be like? The Garden of Eden. Wow. Can you imagine that? And by the way, we're going to see in detailed description more than even the book of Revelation, by the way, a deep description of what it's going to be like here on earth for a thousand years. What's called the millennial kingdom. Literally seeing God working in creation again. Taking it back to even the Garden of Eden, the abandoned and the ruined cities now have strong walls and are filled with people. And then the surrounding nations that survive will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruins, replanted the wastelands, for I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do what I say. Does God ever go back on any of his promises? Does God ever renege on his word? Or, or say, you know, what, you know, people say, you know, put their fingers behind their back and break their promises, you know, or, or, or you know, say some sort of elaborate promise, you know, and say no backsies, all, all the things that we do because we don't trust one another. But can we always trust God? Will God's promises always come true? Yes, they will. Verse 37, this is what the Sovereign Lord said. I'm ready to hear Israel's prayers and increase their numbers like a flock. Uh, they, they will be as a numerous as the sacred flocks that fill Jerusalem streets at the time of her festivals. The ruined cities will be crowded with people once more and everyone will know that I am the Lord. Wow, this is the first time we see this everyone. This is the first time in the book of Ezekiel. Normally, we just see, and, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, for the first time in the book of Ezekiel, going into now chapter 37, which we get to see just a little small glimpse of tonight, by the way. I hope you come back next week and we'll get to see the rest of it. But, but now we see, for the first time, the inclusion of how many people? Not just Israel anymore, not, not just the surrounding nations, but the world. Wow. That famous verse that we all know, John 3.16, for God so loved the... Who does God want to know him? The world. The world. Chapter 37, verse 1, we're only going to get through the first uh, four verses here. But, but you know, just as a, you know, um, uh, a homework assignment, just as a, you know, a little glimpse of what is to come, read this chapter, This I mean, the whole chapter, 
Read it over and over and over again, okay? Once a day. It, it will sink into your heart. It will change you. What does it say? The first four verses, the Lord or Yahweh took hold of me. And I carried away by the spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. So the, the I am that I am, the, the God who is God, holy, 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 uh, the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful. He is everywhere, all at the same uh, time. God coming to Ezekiel carries him away in the spirit. Where do we see that at, by the way? We saw that two times earlier, chapter 1, chapter 3. Where, where Ezekiel's taken in the spirit. Where, where, where God takes him and he sees those majestic cherubim and those seraphim. Those wheels within wheels that are covered with eyes. He takes Ezekiel in the spirit of God. And what does he show him? A valley filled with bones. These aren't just any bones. These are bones that have been bleached white. These are bones with no little pieces of meat or ligaments or, or even, you know, any form of flesh on them, okay? These are dry bones. They've been there a, an extremely long amount of time. In fact, the description that we see there in verse 2, he led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground, and they were completely dried out. Okay? They're, they're, these aren't, you know, decomposing bodies. The, these aren't whole skeletons. The, these are bones that are scattered everywhere that are white. No amount of flesh on them. Okay? And, and the reason why the description is, is there. For us to see is that there's a purpose behind it because the impossible is going to be done the impossible is going to happen with these dry dead bleached by the sun bones i know you all know what's going to happen okay i, I know you all do okay but but the image in the mind, especially of Ezekiel, putting yourself in his shoes, this valley of dry bones filled with bones, femurs and ribs and all the other different, you know, types of bones all over the place. Verse 3, then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Can, can the skeleton that's in your 7th grade classroom come back to life? It was probably plastic, but you know. You, you understand, we, we know that a bone or even a set of bones that, that li literally have no flesh on them can never come back to life. Every single resurrection that we see in the scriptures, you know, whether it was Lazarus, he was four days dead. He had just barely started to decompose, but he had a body, right? He wasn't just bones, right? He had a body, and God raised him back to life. Jesus raised him back to life. 
the, the man that was thrown on Elisha's grave was brought back to life as a human being. He was still flesh and bones. All, all the people that, you know, Peter laid on and Paul breathed into life and, and even Elijah back in the Old Testament breathed into life. All those people that were brought back to life, they, they, they were just dead for a short amount of time. These bones are bleached white, scattered about this valley. And God asks, can I bring these back to life? And of course, Ezekiel says the uh, proper thing. Uh, oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. By the way, that's perfect response to everything God, God says, right? Just submitting to the will of God. You, you know the answer, God. It will save us a lot of problems, by the way, too. Verse 4. And he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. And this leads us perfectly into communion. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you. Ruah, the Hebrew word word that goes all the way back to creation itself when God breathed into Adam. The breath of God, who's the only one that can bring back dead bones. God, the impossible. Now, of course, you know, many people, and I've even talked to people, especially in preparation for the book of Ezekiel, you know, you're going to find, you know, commentaries talk about Israel and all these things. Yes, it is talking about Israel. We'll talk about that next week. But more importantly, it's talking about you. Because God did the impossible when he saved you and brought you back to life. Even more impossible than bringing bones back to life, by the way. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. It was, it was impossible for us to save ourselves and who saved us. The breath of life is breathed into these dry bones. Read the rest of this, uh, this coming week. I'm going to ask the, the guys to come forward, the worship team uh, to come forward. We're going to prepare to take communion together. And I hope as you hold uh, the, the cup and, and the little cracker that, that as we, you know, is passed around, that you would hold it in your hands. That, that you would understand that, that this means life, right? That this is the life that Jesus Christ gave for you. His blood that was shed for you. His body that was broken for you. And what is that sacrifice that Jesus did once on the cross for us? What did it do? It gave us new life. The breath of God breathed into us. And so as you hold those things, we're going to take it corporately. We're going to take it together. Just hold those elements in your hand.
Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. It says this. As they were eating, uh, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. How, how does Jesus bless the bread? With his voice, with his breath, right? It's what's coming out of him. He's blessing the bread. What, what does he say when he blesses the bread? He, he breaks it into pieces. He gives it to his disciples. And what does he say when he gives it to them? Just like what we get to do tonight. Take this and eat it. For this is my body. And so we get to take this together. In the next verse it says this. And he took the cup of wine. Gave thanks to God for it. Again with his breath. With his mouth. With his voice. And gave it to them and said, each of you drink it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. That, that covenant that we broke, that, that covenant that, you know, people throughout history have broken, the nation of Israel broke, that, that covenant that is shed in his blood because of our breaking of the original covenant. The, the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us because of our sin uh, failures. Jesus makes a, a new covenant in his blood. As we hold it in our hands, we know it's, it's not the blood of Jesus Christ. It, it's just a, a symbol, an element. But there's something sacred when we take these, the, the bread and, and, and the cup. It says it there in the, the next phrase. It confirms the covenant between God and man. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is just a glimpse, just a little small reminder of what we get to do with new tongues, with new bodies, with new taste buds in heaven. Can you imagine that? And so as it coats your tongue, as you drink it, Think about the privilege that you get to go to heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Each of you drink from it. And then as all of you know, verse 30, it doesn't end at the taking of the bread and the cup. And they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
this time of year just because I, I you know, I love wearing this shirt this time of year. There's an amazing hymn. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Wealth can never buy. Your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. You get to have the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus Christ forever. Tonight you just got a small glimpse of that. Stand with me.